Robert, and uh, we've been doing ministry together. On, we're on our eighth year together, That's Pastor it. Robert, and uh, so here we are. And occasionally, we, we usually preach separately, but once in a while, we do one of these things together. And so we're going to, you get two sermons today for the price of one. So, uh, three. <laughs> That's worth the cost of the mission right there. <laughs> yeah, so we're in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, this really is sort of the hinge passage, I think, in, in Mark. We've been ramping up to this point, and, uh, and now we have the pinnacle of, of a major confession of Christ as Lord, and then we move and turn and shift toward Jerusalem and toward the cross in the next few weeks. Uh, and so this morning we'll look at this section of scripture in three parts. First of all, the confession of Peter, Mark 8, verses 27 to 30. And then we'll look at uh, the definition of the confession, what it means to be Messiah. Uh, and to try to understand that correctly in Mark 8, verses 31 to 33. And then finally, the application um, of what this means to our life in verses 34 through chapter 9, verse 1. So we're going to start with the confession. And you know, it's interesting, up to this point, Jesus has been doing all kinds of things that are mm-hmm. adequate proof of who he is, proof that he is Messiah, and um, with miracles, miracles should have shown it. He looked at the disciples in chapter 4 and said, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? After all the things you've seen, you still have no faith. Looked at him in 8.21, do you not understand? After all the miracles, are you still ignorant in these things? What's interesting, the pagans recognized it. The Syrophoenician woman came to him and said, even the dogs deserve the crumbs that fall from the children's table. And she, she recognized there's something different about this man. He is the Christ. And yet, Jesus has still not stated clearly, and the disciples have not understood. The demons understand. Every time we see demons in this book, they're recognizing, you're the Christ. You have the demoniac in the synagogue in chapter 1. I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And it tells us in chapter 3 that any time the demons came out of people when Jesus was delivering, they cried out, you're the son of God. And the demoniac over in Decapolis in chapter 5, you're the son of the most high God. But isn't it interesting that the ones who lived with him every day, day in and day out, still did not see who he was. And so we come to chapter 8, verse 27, and it says there, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Let's look at a map. This is as far north as Jesus ever got in his ministry, this section right here. And there is Caesarea Philippi right there, right at the top of the green. That's Caesarea Philippi. Jerusalem is down here in Judea. There's the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus went up to Caesarea Philippi. There's the Sea of Galilee. And these things occurred. Now, when he walked up, there was a religious shrine in Caesarea Philippi. Then when you walk up to it, it looks like this. Donna is standing there waiting for you. (laughs) Ever the gracious hostess. Everyone wave at Donna. This cave used to have water flowing out of it. There was an earthquake in about the 5th century, I think it was, and uh, the, the water was redirected. But as you come up to it, this is what you see. And then you turn right and go up a little hill, and as you turn around up the hill and look back down, this is what you see, and there's the cave down there, down on the bottom right. And all of these booths were booths dedicated to different gods. The primary god that was worshipped there was the god Pan, and his followers would work themselves into a frenzy until it was almost a panic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is the origin of the word. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And all of these booths were occupied by adherents to different philosophies and different religions and different gods were worshipped in all of these. And it was here. It was here at the 
complete admixture of every religion imaginable, the complete syncretism of all kinds of different religions, that Jesus is standing looking at this and said, Who do men say that I am? Right down there, that cave, all of these adherents would bring their offerings into that cave. They'd throw that offering, the the animal or their baby, into the cave. And if the blood of the sacrifice came back out with the water, then they knew that their sacrifice had been rejected by the gods. That cave is called the gates of hell. And Jesus was standing there when he said, who do men say that I am? And Peter over in Matthew eleven eleven sixteen 16 rather, I said, I'm sorry, said, you're the Christ, the son of the God, the living one. And Jesus said this, you, you didn't come this by yourself. The father revealed this to you. And on that truth, I'll build my kingdom in the gates of hell, that thing right there. All of this, all of this admixture of religion, the gates of hell themselves will not be able to stand against the truth that you have just declared. So all of Mark has been pointing to this question so far, ramping up, showing us by his actions, by his miracles, by his words that Jesus is the Christ. And then here comes the question, who do you say that I am? And that is the ultimate question of the universe. Who is Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? Who is he? That's the question of the gospel. It's the question of salvation. It is the question of what put, is put at the center of your life. Who is Jesus? And the people said that there were many answers. The disciples were said that it could be, they told them, some say John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Others say you're one of the prophets. And so uh, here are the possibilities of, of who Jesus is. Now, listen, that's a pretty good list of people to be compared to. I mean, we would like to be said, well, we're like John the Baptist, or we're like, I mean, John the Baptist, Jesus said, there's, there's no man that has been greater than John the Baptist, or like Elijah, who brought down fire from heaven and caused rain to cease for three years. This is a, these are great men, great men to be compared to, unless you're Jesus. <laughs> and if you're Jesus, it's a great diminishment of who you are. Because Jesus was way more than a prophet and way more than a great man. He was the Messiah, God in human flesh. He was the chosen Holy One of God, the only begotten Son of God, uniquely so, none ever like Him. And so Jesus hears all of this, John the Baptist, Elijah, and then He looks at His disciples and says, How about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered Him and said, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. It is that question, who are you? That is the gospel. Who, who is Jesus? And, and you can be wrong on all these others and still make it. Friends, because Christianity is not about what you think about your preacher or your favorite author or your, the, the, the guy you like to watch on TV. That's not what Christianity is about. The question of Christianity is, who is Christ? And you have to answer that question. That is, you can be wrong on all the others. You can be wrong about everybody else and still make it into glory. But you can't be wrong about who Jesus is and make it. That's the question that all of the others wrap themselves around. My, my theology professor, Dr. Barney, used to say, Robert, your Christology is like the hub of the wheel and all the other doctrines are the spokes. If you get it right on Jesus, everything else will fall into place. But if you're wrong on Jesus, everything is out of kilter. That's a good line. And Jesus asks them the most important question of all time, the question that we have to ask ourselves, and that is, mm-hmm. who do you say that I am? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And so that's the question. We believe this text presses on each one of us this morning. Who do you and you and you and you and you say that Jesus is? And as he asks that question, Jesus is affirming that what all of Mark has been pointed to so far is true of him, that he is the only begotten Son of God, the one unique person in whom is life itself, the creator of the world, the one who is alone without sin, who uh, is the one in whom we must be saved. It's not good enough to uh, see him as one of many other options. He is singularly the Son of God, and we must put our faith in him as the Messiah. And so Peter answers the question. Now, Peter got it wrong a lot, okay? Poor guy. He, He got it wrong a lot. I'll never forsake you. He's about to tell him, oh, don't say these things. It'll never happen to you. At the transfiguration we're going to look at next week, this is so great. Let us just stay here. We'll build three tabernacles and we'll just never leave. He got it wrong a bunch of times. But friend, he got it right on this one. He got it right on this one. When Jesus looked at him and said, who do you say that I am? Peter got it right when he said, you are the Christ. And that passage in Matthew 16 is even more definitive, even more concise, has no equivocation, no soft selling. You are the Christ, the Son of the God, the living one. There's no doubt about it. Peter makes it very clear. We understand who you are. He is the only one. And friends, we can be wrong about all the other stuff. We've got to be right on who he is. Because he tells us, we're told over in in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. We have to be right on that one. And Jesus is inviting them into the problem. Who do you think that I am? Oh, we got it. You're the Christ. So we've got the answer right. We're going to look at the process of getting there in just a minute. It is this confession that saves us, actually. It's why Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is a historic confession of Jesus as as Lord. And that is what God is seeking to reveal to us, that Jesus indeed is Lord of all, the Messiah, the one in whom there is salvation and no one else. And that when we then confess, as Peter did, that Jesus is Lord of our lives and believe that he is the risen Christ, the Bible says we are saved. And so this is a historic confession that God is calling us to. And I want us to see that this confession was made, as Pastor Robert said, in Caesarea Philippi, which was a pagan area where there were lots of gods. And it was not a popular thing there to say Jesus is Lord. And so these people, like us today, had to, and we must too, stand up and say we are followers of Christ as the only way to God. That is what this is saying in this text. And in, in fact, the Romans didn't care if you worship Jesus. They didn't care who you said was a God. They don't care who you say is a Lord. They have pantheons of gods. What got the Christians in trouble was this. they said, no, there are not many. There's one. And his name is Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's what, that's what got him in trouble then. And friends, it's the exact same thing now. You know, I told you about the, 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 the when Oprah uh, was, had a show going and she, a woman stood up and said, yeah, but Jesus said he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by him. And Oprah looked at him and said, you don't, but you don't believe that, do you? Friends, it was no different then than it is now. All of society said, oh, there are a lot of different ways. There are many different ways to get there. Let's just choose one and be nice to each other. And Jesus comes into that melee and says, no, there are not many ways. There's one way, and I are it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He is the way. Mm -hmm. 
And it caused as much disruption in that day as it does in this day. Yeah, it does. And the question is, what is going to be your conclusion about who Jesus is? Is he a nice doobie or is he God in the flesh? Mm-hmm. That is the question we everyone must mm-hmm. answer. And that's what this text is pressing on us, is that Jesus is the singular Son of God, the one in whom there is salvation in, in no one else. Now, it's interesting that, that Peter came to this conclusion that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the chosen one, the Holy One of God. Uh, and, and yet now we will see that there was this misunderstanding under the surface of what that meant. You know, it's quite possible to have the right answer, but to have sort of undergirding processes that are not right. Maybe many of you may have had this experience in algebra. It's possible to get the right answer, but you did all the wrong work to get there. And then the professor marks you, you know, 50% wrong. I had this problem in engineering school all the time. They really almost didn't care about whether you got the right answer. They want to know how you got there. That was more important. The process was more important than the actual answer. And and so time and again, you know, I would see, well, I had a pretty good answer. Well, no, you didn't do the process right. So, and there's the red ink. And so that can happen to us. And this is a little bit what happened to Peter. He's got the answer right. You are the Messiah. And yet the undergirding process of his understanding of that was not correct. And to even come to the right answer took time. Jesus, this is at the end of what's called the Great Galilean Ministry. It's the second phase of Jesus' ministry. The first phase was called the Year of Beginnings. Year of beginning lasted one year. Very good. See, it's really just not that technical. The second, this year of beginnings lasted about a year and a half. So Peter has been with Jesus now for a year and a half, and he's just now coming to this statement. And you know what? Jesus is okay with it. Jesus is okay with the fact that sometimes we're a little bit dense. It takes us a little bit longer to get there than our spouse wishes it would take. But Jesus is okay with it. It took two and a half years to come to the place where he's able to say, Oh, You're the Son of God. And that it's going to take some more time to not only have the right answer, but to have the right process? Jesus is okay with that. He knows that every one of us are on a journey. And He's okay with that. He's okay that it takes us a little bit longer than we wish it would take. But He knows He's in it for the long haul. He who has begun a good work in you, Mm -hmm. what? Will continue it all the way to the day of the Lord Jesus. And to that we can say, wow, thank you, God, for your commitment to my ongoing growth. Yeah. And so Peter had the wrong definition of Messiah. He had sort of the classical first century definition of Messiah. There was an anticipation of the Messiah in the first century, which I think set the stage for the coming of Christ. They were looking for someone to come and deliver them, the Jewish people. But their idea of Messiah was that he would come and he would conquer and he would establish physical rule on earth. He would establish a nation and finally give the Jewish people peace and secure borders where they could live for their God without any interruption. It was a physical, conquering, warrior-like ruler that they were looking for in the Messiah. And that's what Peter had in his mind. And yet that was not what Jesus had come to do. Jesus had come to do something entirely different. And we see that in verse 31 of Mark chapter 8. It says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, and the Son of Man is a term for Messiah. We find it in Daniel. And it's a term of this person that would come and deliver. The Son of Man must suffer, oh my gosh, many things, 
and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Messiah, killed. And after three days, rise again. He probably didn't even hear. Once he got past suffering and killed, he probably didn't even hear that. But here's Messiah, this conquering ruler that he has in his mind. is now going to come and he's going to die. God, die. Messiah, die. That just blew their minds. So first off, we have the confession, you are the Son of God. And now we're going to move secondly into the definition of what it means to be Son of God. And Peter thought he had it figured out. That means that we're going to be free from Roman rule. It means we're finally going to have our extended period of independence. All we had, we had a few, few years of it back 160 years ago. We had a little bit of independence lasted for about a century. But we've been under these Romans for a long time and Messiah is going to come and deliver us from all of this and then Jesus stands up and says, you got the right answer, but here's the, here's how we get there. It's through suffering and death and rejection and being buried. And the disciples looked at him and said, you've been reading the wrong books. <laughs> you, you, you know, the books that are on my shelf, they, they don't agree with that. And we all do this. We all build our library to, to uh, agree with and support and strut up the conclusions that we've come to. I've put a lot of thought into this and I have my conclusions. You know what a conclusion is? A conclusion is the point at which you choose to stop thinking about a matter. And what Jesus lets us know is there's always one more thing to think about. And just because we don't allow those books in our library doesn't mean they're incorrect. And Jesus comes to him and says, I know what you've been thinking. You've been thinking there's going to be a a political liberation and a military conquering here. But let me tell you, there are two things that you need to know. This verse wraps them up very well. First off, He's God. We find that in Matthew eight twenty nine. But secondly, he came to serve. We see that in, in Mark. I mean Mark eight twenty nine. We see that in Mark ten forty five. And we see those two themes wrapped well into this one verse of eight thirty one. He came, the Son of Man, God, to die and to serve other people. And the text says us in says in Mark eight thirty two that he said it plainly. So he wanted to make this very clear. Uh, who Messiah is? Who is this person, Jesus? No parables, just stating it in undeniable terms, what is about to happen. And we call this the gospel. It is the gospel that Jesus died, rose again, conquered sin and death. 1 Corinthians 15, to 4 states it very plainly. It says, now I would remind you, brothers, of this gospel that I preach to you. And by which you are being saved. Here it is now. Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day. In accordance with the scriptures. And so Messiah came. Not just as a conquering ruler. But to come to pay a price. To pay a ransom. To atone for, to pay a, penalty, pay a penalty for our sins. What they had missed was that their sins were so grievous and so broken that they had to have a Savior who was perfect, God in human flesh without sin, die in their place. That the wrath of God, which was justly against sin, would be satisfied. And would you believe in this Messiah who would love you enough to die for your sins and to die in your place. That was the message 
of the and, gospel. And here we are, eight chapters into Mark, two and a half years into the ministry, and this is the first time that Jesus looks at them and says, I'm going to suffer and be rejected and die and rise from the dead. It, it blew their minds. They, they couldn't get their minds around it. And the result of it was that the very guy who had had such an excellent, such a wonderful response of, who do you say that I am? Peter, he looked at him and said, you're the Christ. As, as excellent as he did on that question, he did badly on this question because it says in 832, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, it's kind of like, you know, Jesus, look. I'm a big boy, and I can take this kind of stuff. But these other guys, they're, they're kind of soft, you know. We've got to be gentle with them. You're scaring the people. You're scaring the little people. We don't want to do this. You got, we know what Messiah means. It means victory and power and domination. We're going to get rid of it. We know what it means. And he began to explain to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, Oh, thank you. I, I misunderstood so completely. <laughs> the comedy of anybody explaining the situation to Jesus is just overwhelming. <laughs> But Peter tries and he says, you know, you don't, you're not say things like that. It's scaring the people. And Jesus looked at him in verse 33 and with no uncertain terms rebuked Peter and said, get behind me. Mm -hmm. Wow. Get behind me, Satan, because you are not setting your mind on the things of God. You're not thinking about God's definition of Messiah, but on the things of man. You have your definition of Messiah. And we look at him and go, well, of course we have our definition. We're right. We're homies. We're, we're his peeps, you know. And if we've decided it, it's got to be right. That's just not the case. Just because you've concluded it doesn't mean Jesus agrees. Now, in defense of Peter, there is a day coming that we all need to get ready for where Jesus is coming as conquering Messiah, right? There is a second coming, and he will come, and he will establish rule, and he will reign forever and ever over a new heaven and a new earth. That day is ahead. He just didn't have the timing right. And so there is that element of the Messiah that is huge and final and where we are all going. And we need to get ready for that day. But before that could happen, so that there could be a people that God would call his own, he had to die that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Now, I, you know, I, I, we've, we've talked a lot about this, Robert, and I did this week, and, and you know, all of us are in <laughs> theological development. We, we, we have a lot of things that we hold dear and true that are right and surely will be true, proven right in the end, and yet all of us have room to grow in our theologies and our understanding, right? Isn't that true? In fact, uh, one of the Bible teachers... I've listened to over the years, some is John MacArthur, and, and I heard him say this once, which I was really happy to hear him say, because he tends to be quite certain about everything he says, but he, he said, uh, he goes, I know every Sunday I say something that's wrong. I don't know what it is, or I would change it, but you just need to know I am a man under development. And I think that is a good, humble approach to our theology and to our understanding of who Christ is. Yes, there are things that we hold dear and we will hold forever, and yet there are things also that we hold that may not quite be right, and we need to be open to continuing to grow and understand and be gracious to one another as we wrestle through those things. So we continue to submit to the revelation of God's definition of who he is and what that means in our life. And so first off, we have the confession. You're the son of God. Secondly, we have the definition the Son of God, the Son of Man is going to die, and then He's going to rise from the dead. And thirdly, we have the application of that definition in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38. It says, And He called to Him the crowd with His disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself 
and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And that verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I wonder if that was just about as shocking to them as verse 31 where he said the Son of Man will die and suffer many things and rise from the dead. Wait a minute. You're going to die. Okay, now our minds are blown. And we have to die on the cross? Do you know what a violent scene that is? That's, that's reserved only for the worst of society and we're going to be on the cross? Oh, that's, that's a terrible, terrible thing. And I wonder if this passage is as, as shocking to their systems as verse 31 was. You, not only am I going to die, but in order to be my follower, you have to die also. This text is talking to us about how do we find life. What is of value to us? How do we live in such a way that we don't waste this one little life that we have? We've got one little existence. Here we are, given life today. Every one of us, life and breath. One life to live. How do we make it count? And intuitively, I think we say in this culture, if I can just discover myself, if I can self-actualize myself as we learn in college and, 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 and get to the top of that pyramid. And, and, and then Jesus says to us something quite the opposite. He says, if you really want to find life, if you really want to live, if you really want to be fulfilled in life, here's how you do it. You die to yourself. You give up your life. You surrender it. You give it to me. In fact, <laughs> there is nothing good in you, Jesus says in John 15. Nothing, nothing. And if you just live it out of your own flesh and your own desires, you'll end up in a train wreck. Here's how you really live. You die to all of that and you give your life to me. You invite me into the side of you by my spirit and then you will live. That's how you find life. And that is similar then to Jesus' death on the cross, that Jesus dies for us. Now we got to enter that death. And then when we enter that death and die to ourselves, then we live, the Bible says. And friends, this is the gospel. Jesus is God in the flesh. He died for my sins. He died for your sins. He rose from the dead. And now he demands that anyone who follow him die just like he did Mm -hmm. so that they can be raised to life Mm -hmm. just like he was. And we look at that and go, that, that's such a radical message. Mm-hmm. And then on top of it all, he says, and I am the only way. Mm-hmm. Friends, it was no easier for them to declare that message in that day than it is for us to declare it today. Mm-hmm. And we can look at that and we can be scared of it. And we, I understand that. I understand the, the fear of, of telling people, no, there's no other way than Jesus. Paul understood that. He said, I want you to pray for me that I'll have boldness mm-hmm. to preach the word like I need to. But there came a time in Paul's life over in Romans 1.16 where he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. He, he used to be scared of it, but he came to the place where he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, because as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And the world looks at us and says, you believe that? Yeah. It says, it says it's foolishness to those who don't believe. You, you believe that nonsense? Yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. 
Well, prove it. I can't. How, why do you believe it? Because I choose to believe. I choose to live by faith that Jesus is who he said he is and his demands are on my life as much as on any of his other disciples. I choose to believe. And that's what it is. It is a choice. It is a choice of the will to say, I believe. I accept Jesus for who he says he was. It's a decision every man and woman and child must make. You choose him or you choose to reject him. And the Bible doesn't give you a third category. There's no fence riding in Christianity. You are either for me or you are against me, Jesus said. And what we choose with Jesus determines our life today and our eternal life forever. Now, it is a choice that you make that saves you, a choice to receive Christ and to believe in him. However, that battle of dying to ourselves and killing the flesh and that evil part of us is a lifelong journey. It starts with a decision and a confession that Jesus, you are Lord, and I give my life to you, and then you enter into a real battle of dying to yourself. <laughs> day by day, moment by moment, the problem with living sacrifices, which we are, is we crawl off the altar, and we got to get back on it regularly, dying to ourselves daily. I, Pastor Robert and I were talking about this this week, how even in our 50s, it is such a battle, even today, to be people who live for Jesus, surrender to him, and kill the flesh. And so it's an ongoing journey of laying down our life that we might have life in Christ. And this kingdom that Jesus is coming to establish, it's not dependent on political power. It's not dependent on a physical throne. I watched a documentary this past week on um, uh, the presidential election of 1968. Now, I know as exciting as that is for some of you. I know, I know. And Donna was just thrilled to get to watch that, but we watched the Steven Seagal movie for her, so she was happy with that. <laughs> but the only thing it said was they began running for president in 1968, not in 1967, not in 1966. And you look at the changing political uh, landscape that we're dealing with where we've been in this presidential election cycle for the last year and a half, and now we have another 11 months to endure, I mean, enjoy of the whole thing. And Jesus looked at that and said, the kingdom that I'm coming to establish is not dependent on what CNN has to say or, or Fox or, or what the political pundits think. The, the kingdom that I am coming to establish is not dependent on a throne. The kingdom that I'm coming to establish is rooted in the heart mm -hmm. of the believer mm -hmm. to such an extent mm -hmm. that chapter 9 verse 1 says, Truly I say to you, I'm telling you the truth, listen to me. There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Friends, the kingdom that he is dealing with is not dependent on any outward show. It is resting completely in the faith and transformation of the human heart. There is uh, what theologians say, a, what's called a now but not yet component to the kingdom of God that Jesus breaks in as king. And what it means to be part of the kingdom is to surrender your life to the king. I follow Jesus. He is the king. Now I'm part of the kingdom. And that is happening in part in the human hearts of people all over this world, but it is not entire yet. It is not complete yet. It is, it's an inbreaking and a growing kingdom. But there is a day, and it's not yet, when the kingdom will be fully and completely established and his rule and reign will be complete and will be forever and ever. Amen.
And so when you read chapter 9, verse 1, it's an interesting verse. It creates lots of debate amongst those who study Scripture because it says something very interesting. It says, those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God and that it comes in power. Some have said, well, Jesus must have been wrong because his eternal kingdom hasn't been fully established yet and all these people died. He must have missed it on this one. And of course, we know that Jesus would never and never does ever miss it. But what he is speaking of is the inbreaking of the kingdom and that that coming in power will be seen in part through the transfiguration that we'll hear about next week and the showing of Jesus' glory, through the death and resurrection, the powerful resurrection of Christ, the breaking in of the kingdom of power through the resurrection through the coming of Pentecost and the establishment of the church and the Holy Spirit coming in, in great power. And, and so all of these are now, we see the power of God, but not the complete and absolute fulfillment, not quite yet, of everything that will come one day when Jesus comes and establishes his rule at the second coming. And so this was fulfilled, I think, in many ways and will be ultimately and finally fulfilled in the coming of power and the second coming of Christ. The continual expanding of the kingdom in our hearts will be manifest in sight on that day when Philippians 2 says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Friends, that day is coming. That will be the ultimate manifestation, revelation of His kingdom in power. But in the meantime, aren't you thankful for the change that He's bringing to you mm -hmm. along the way? In the meantime, isn't that a great statement? Isn't that a great line out of the Bible? In the meantime, He continues to work. He continues to change. He continues to reveal. And aren't you glad He didn't show you everything He's going to have to deal with the day you got saved? Man, that would freak us out, wouldn't it? No, this is a process, this is a journey, mm -hmm. and he's okay with that. Mm -hmm. It's okay for us to be okay with that too. Mm -hmm. yeah. He invites us yes. into his process of allowing him to be established in power in our lives. Are you willing to look at him and say, Jesus, I confess you're the Christ. You, you are God in the flesh. And the death you died, I'm willing to die that death again and again and again. Paul said, I die daily. Why? So that I can be raised to walk in a new kind of life. God, bring me to life by your spirit in this area. So let's take full advantage of all that God gives us to participate in becoming like him through the reading of his word. This might be a good year to read the Bible through or at least regularly read it a little bit each day. A good year to commit to coming to church regularly, week by week, and to hear God's Word, to sit under it. A good week, a good year to connect with God's people that He gives us to sharpen us and be sharpened by. Maybe this is the year you get involved in a community group, and there are community groups. If you are interested in getting connected in a smaller setting where you study God's Word together, let us know. We want to help you do that. Maybe this is the year where you commit to praying regularly calling upon God for his power in your life in new and fresh ways. All this has been given to us as a way of dying to ourselves and Christ's life becoming full and flowering in our lives. But this text, I think, presses on us just this question. Who is the Christ? What's your answer to that? And what will you do with it? Will you give your life to him?
That's the questions of this text. Are you going to follow him as Lord and Savior of all? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your revelation, your manifestation of Jesus. We go to Caesarea Philippi of our own lives, all of the gods that we worship, the money, the cars, the fame, the power, everything that we like to establish at our own Caesarea Philippi. All the sacrifices we make to gain the approval of our gods. And Jesus shows up and says, Who do you say that I am? God... Thank you for invading our reality with Jesus. And we want our answer to be the correct answer. You are the Christ. And Father, as you come to us with that second question now, how are you going to live your life in light of that answer? God, help us. We want, we want to live a submitted life to the work that you are doing in us. God, please be glorified in us through Jesus.